0: Welcome to Great Minds. And our guest today is Kevin McGurn. Kevin has a great, great gig in working really all across the world as the leader and the president of sales and distribution for Vivo. So Kevin, we are absolutely thrilled to have you here. Thanks so much for doing this. Thanks for having me, Matt. So Kevin, our our crack team has uh, turned up all kinds of things. And uh, one of the areas I thought might be a great place to start is the lessons we learn when we're young through sports and through team sports in particular. And I know you were an athlete and you played at a pretty high level. I'd love to talk about that experience, what shaped you, maybe where there was a coach that might've influenced you or teammates. And you played collegiately lacrosse at the highest level um, there's gotta be some great lessons that would help you throughout your career that we can trace back to that beginning.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I guess you did do some digging. Um, no, I mean, I've always taken, uh, you know, a, a very positive view of, of participating in athletics and, you know, any sport at any level, I think is a, is a good thing to be involved with. I, I did play lacrosse. I, I played all the way through college. Um, but you know, as far as coaching and and, and and taking lessons from players, my high school coach uh, was a guy by the name of Bill Carpluck. But actually, the guy that coached me the most was my brother Michael, who was also a high school coach. He actually took over the head coaching position uh, right after I left high school. And um, you know, having someone on the field that you know knows you intimately and and knows you you know knows every sort of in and out of your, of your personality, not just your position and, and your skills, um, I think is really beneficial. And it served me well, you know, it served me well through, through college. And I actually ended up in college playing with my other brother, uh, Darren, and you know actually transferred to Ohio Wesleyan to play with him. And he was a tremendous player. Um, it's one of the reasons why I kind of continued on with the sport was to go and make sure that I was, able to be on the field a little bit longer with him. But, um, you know, he was an offensive player and was a four-time All-American Attackman of the Year, Player of the Year. Uh, and I was just at the other end, you know, taking, taking shots to the head as a goalie. But, um, you know, it was a really great, you know, bunch of people that I always got to play with. Uh, great coaches, a guy by the name of Mike Fuller uh, in a prep school I went to has passed away. Uh, and then Leland Rogers from Syracuse University, who I played with. These were all big, tough guys, my brother included. Uh, so I always figured, you know, if you could deal with those guys on a day-to-day basis, uh, business wouldn't be that hard.
0: And you were also an All-American. Let's not gloss over that. Two time as I recall.
1: Uh, yeah, yeah. You know, that's uh, that's what all the bumps and bruises will get you.
0: Fantastic. So you uh, have a great career and an academic career uh, at Ohio Wesleyan, and then end up um, working. I'm not going to go to your first job. We're going to jump a little bit because you worked early on and what was really their Halcyon days at, at a company that's disappeared from public view, but still very much part of the digital landscape. And that would be DoubleClick. Mm-hmm. Yeah, talk about that early part of your experience. You were about four or five years out of school, so still a pretty young buck. And DoubleClick was a was a raging inferno at that time.
1: It was, yeah. I mean, publicly traded company at the time. Um, I got to DoubleClick on the tail end of being in the rich media business with a small uh, startup called Unicast and had gone through the process of really looking around and figuring out from a career standpoint where I wanted to go, DoubleClick was highly established, had just fundamentally exited their media business and gotten more deeply into just ad serving and technology business and services and applications at an enterprise level. And I worked for Doug Knopper there uh, and and, uh, a a number of other great leaders, but, uh, but Doug was the top of the food chain in that particular business. And was really brought in to kind of write the ship on a lot of pricing that had been out there on the agency and advertiser side of the business through their media, you know, through their media years and, and needed to be right sized um, into an enterprise level technology and then to tack on other services. Um, you know, like like tracking and and, um, and email and, and you know, and a lot of rich media went along with that as well, which is why they kind of came and found me. So I love that business. I thought it was a really cool place to, to learn. Um, I have a dangerous uh, level of knowledge when it comes to how a bill becomes a law in the ad serving world. Um, I will never say that I can write code or that I, um, you know, I understand it, but I could sell it. And the folks that were there, I was always so impressed by. It was one of the first um, real interactions I had with, uh, with, with engineers, um, having them actually involved with a sale at an enterprise level. I thought that was a really cool thing to experience. Um, and DoubleClick, as you know, kind of a juggernaut at the time, had a, had a worthy foe in Atlas. Uh, and so that from a competitive set, it was both a price game and a, and a quality game. And I thought we actually had a really good product uh, and had a great team of folks that went out there, uh, uh, Sean Downey uh, and Shane Piros, uh, who you, you know as well, um, and the woman by the name of Rachel Kerrigan. They were all dynamite salespeople. So I got to learn from them along the way. Uh, and, and we had some fun and, and really kind of changed the face of that business and created some scale in it, um, You know, kind of drove price down and drove volume up. And, and that's the way the internet was going at the time. And um, and it furthered my love for rich media and video. and obviously that you know that put me on a path uh, directly where I end up today, but but in the video world. Yeah,
0: I love it and sometimes it emerges and sometimes it doesn't. But I love it when a narrative about someone emerges. And for you, Kevin, there were sort of two. The first one is you were really early to the game in the science, Of our business, of what it really means, not from an engineering vantage point, but understanding what targeting meant, what that ability, where it was all sort of going very early on. And and you built on that after DoubleClick with audience science.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, the practical application of technology and advertising was something that I fell in love with Um, from the time that I worked at Unicast, where we were trying to, you know, pre-cache advertisements and get much better resolutions and much bigger file sizes in front of people on 56k modems all the way through double click and then into audience science where we started to apply data to what was behavioral targeting and now you know we just call addressability, right? Um, so I love the idea of learning things. I, I definitely was fortunate enough to be a little bit of ahead of the curve in, in a number of these different um, technology innovations. And you know a lot of that Early experience uh, culminated in an application um, fr- from building a team and then building the service and really having some unbelievable engineers uh, to construct things that we asked them to construct at Hulu. Um, and you know, building that ad-serving platform, not personally, but you know, from a from a strategic standpoint. Uh, from the ground up and working with some really unbelievable engineers at that Hulu team um, and with Jason Kyler, of course, you know, and product visions and mirroring the idea of content and technology in a, in a disruptive way, but in my mind, a truly innovative way and, and sort of tr- designing things in the way that they should be. And, and you know, that, that was the fun thing for us when we went out to the market is we had such a tremendous amount of confidence, such a position of strength From which to pitch to advertisers and agencies and really just tell them hey you know tell us what you want tell us what you're not getting right now and regardless of the media platform tell us what you need and if we have it we'll give it to you but if we don't we'll build it Uh, and it's a it's a really advantageous position to be in but you have to come in knowing what you want And, and you know there's you can take that from your previous experience as you mentioned um, more often than not, I take it from what people need uh, and what the advertisers tell us. Kind of, I always call it a market-backed approach. Look at the market, figure out what they want, and then that's how you back into your strategy. Uh, and we did that you know, quite a bit at, at, uh, at Hulu uh, and certainly are doing it here at Vivo. But you know, those lessons learned along the way in rich media, in ad serving, in behavioral targeting, uh, and then fundamentally in video when I worked at NBC, it all got applied uh, to the businesses thereafter. And I, and I think to the benefit of, uh, of a lot of content owners, a lot of, you know,
0: a lot of advertisers, and uh, certainly the companies that we were working for. Fantastic stuff. So Kevin, I want to get to that second narrative, but before we get there, you uh, threw out the term rich media a few times. And yeah. you're one of very few who can speak to what rich media used to mean, and what it means today, and where this video revolution that Vivo is helping to lead globally has taken us. Talk about the early days and what rich media used to mean.
1: Yeah, Yeah, uh, what it really meant early days was trying to solve for a total lack of bandwidth uh, in a million different scenarios, be it in a banner or in a pop-up or in a video stream and trying to figure out new and improved ways to create animations, to create video, to create interaction, to create attention. Um, and that's really what it came down to. We were looking for brand attributes that were very rarely applied to a, a, a typically static space. Um, and that was the early days of the internet. And we had a lot of fun doing it and a lot of, a lot of trials, a lot of failures um, and, you know, getting to, to do so in a way that, in a good way, you know, your job just kept getting easier as bandwidth progressed, right? You know, as broadband came on board, you're like, Oh, wow, that, that, you know, what what was impossible to do two years ago is kind of easy right now. And what's the next thing that you get to do? What level of interactivity, what level of engagement, what level of gamification? Um, and, you know, all of those things were really important to learn along the way, because as you get into, you know, today's market and, you know when you're layering on that targetability and you're layering on you know a much more engaged experience from a content standpoint you have to balance what the user is going to see what you're going to challenge them with what they can retain you know what kind of brand attributes are you trying to move what kind of interaction are you trying to move what kind of acquisition are you trying to get to and and the and the richer the media really all it comes down to is the more engaged that user is, that's what you're trying to get to. And and the brand is impressed upon them in a much deeper uh, and stronger way. And that's all that innovation is in advertising. You know, you're just trying to move those metrics, move those mixed marketing models and get you to a place where that transaction is as important as the brand imprint that you're starting with um, and really compress that funnel into one product and one experience. So for us, you know, we, we constantly are mindful of that. We constantly talk to agencies and advertisers and the creative shops about that. Uh, and we're always looking for ideas from them. And then we're looking to implement those innovations in our day-to-day. Yeah.
0: I remember in 2005, it was our second year of Advertising Week. And the IAB had a character called Rich Media. They hired an actor. They put him <laughs> in like an old, like, I want to say it was like a 70s, almost like maybe an old, maybe in like an Oldsmobile or a a Lincoln, a big, a big convertible and drove him around the city. And there was like a Sunday night party, which no one had ever done at a townhouse to introduce rich media. And they were Mm -hmm. trying to just elevate awareness of what was possible, which back then was not that much.
1: No, I mean, I would, I, I agree, you know, I'd started um, in rich media at the end of 1999, beginning of 2000. And you're right, by 2005, it was still an emerging technology, it was still yet to break through. But I think that's the definition of the term, right? There's no such thing as standardized rich media. Um, so, you know, that, that's the idea that, that will, you know, it'll always be on the bleeding edge of what technology can offer an advertiser. And really that's what we're talking about here is the advertising technology. So, and the IAB has always done a good job of that. The IAB is always looking for standardization, but I think the interesting thing about that term rich media is that it shouldn't ever be a standard. It should be the experimental side of what we're doing. Um, and that it should coexist and be commingled with, um, you know, data and targeting. And the, as you layer on those intricacies to those platforms and to those products, that's, you know, that's the experimentation. That's where it all comes together for advertisers to test, learn and see what's gonna work and then invest more heavily from that point forward. And then your standards are in the rearview mirror. Your standards are what you sell as a bread and butter and you sell in volume, but you're always looking
0: ahead to what's gonna be next. Yeah, no, well said, very well said. So that second narrative, You at the most senior level have been leading companies for a long time now that have collaborative ownership where you have many voices at Vivo, it's Universal and Sony, but that's an evolution The ownership group I think was at one point was considerably larger than that at Vivo. You've done this at Hulu, you've done it at NBCU. Talk about that experience and navigating what's gotta be at times a interesting political landscape internally, where you have various owners who are cooperators on your business, but perhaps competitors on others. That's got to be a fascinating part of your career evolution.
1: Yeah, it definitely is. I, I sort of woke up uh, sometime in the middle of my tenure at, at Otter Media, which was a joint venture of at and and the Churning Group, um, and realized, like, wow, I, I actually have done a lot of joint ventures so far. And um, you, you are right; you, you categorize it properly. In in a lot of cases, they are a competition that has banded together, typically to protect from some outside threat. Um, you know, whether it was whether it was you know big platforms or portals or you know other types of upstart you know companies that were that were cannibalizing other you know platforms of viewership. Um, you know, the joint ventures are really interesting things from a structural standpoint, because the, you know, the early days are just meant to build and stake claim and to drive growth. And then as you get into the later stages, you know, they start to become really integral to the to the collective revenues of those services and, and those companies. And um, and they almost become more complex. Uh, the, the, <laughs> the initial concept can can be actually quite simplistic. Let's let's just try to figure this out. Um, and then, as those companies get really large, um, the the you know kind of the forces that pull against them can be more readily seen from the outside world. Um, so yeah, no hulu was Hulu was great. I, I, I think you couldn't get a better you know formula for what was you know what was going into a big media joint venture. Um, you know Nbc and 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 Fox at the time hired Jason Kyler. Um, you know, a, a, a total innovator, um, someone who was truly you know from the engineering and product side of the business at Amazon, um, running their software, their, you know, worldwide software applications, and you know they let him build something that you know in the team obviously uh, that he hired, which was just phenomenal, uh, build something that had never been seen before, um, and we used to talk about it back in the day that um you know big media joint ventures were generally you know not successful and whether it was the early days when we were dubbed clown co by you know a couple big leaders uh in, in the technology business um or you know when we brought on disney uh and abc and um and, and you know had a, a even bigger joint venture than the one we started with people just constantly rooted against you um I kind of like that. Honestly, I I think that's fine for me. I I love that competitive chip on your shoulder. Um, You can really rile up teams. I mean, one of the things that I do in life is just motivate people um, and they give you a lot of fodder to motivate people when when they're throwing hate your way. Um, So I kind of like it. You know, I I think it goes back to that, you know, that competitive uh, sort of athletic drive in, in somebody, you know, just to be just to be a winner. But what I always say to my teams is everybody wants to win. You got to find the people that hate to lose because there's a difference. And, you know, we found those people in lots of different walks of life and brought them in and trained them up and whatever our specific application was at that time. And, um, you know, we travel in packs. So a lot of these folks, we all still work together. But, um, you know, you kind of fast forward through the years and I really love Vivo because the the joint venture that we're a part of was solving for more of a, a wider industry issue, um, and really what that was was the I'll I'll never call it the extin- extinction but you know it was the deprioritization of an art form, uh, you, which was the music video, and it wasn't the music industry's choice to deprioritize it. It was it was the television network's choice to deprioritize it because giving them credit too it's extremely hard to program an hour of music video viewership or music video programming that a big audience would watch together and would stay tuned for long enough to get a rating. And, you know, the technology has advanced in such a way, um, starting with YouTube, of course, with their search and recommendation discovery um, to, to afford people choice and afford people customization and to have that element of personalization in their viewership and as you fast forward those same inherent technologies not being you know solely owned by one company but actually being you know available to lots of companies and smart televisions and set-top boxes and other types of services particularly in connected tv it's brought the music video back to the living room and the music industry wanted that the music industry needed that the artists the managers the labels themselves uh, music videos are both a promotional and the commercial opportunity and YouTube proved the commercial opportunity, but you know the, the television world had not really done that uh, to date. They were It was a great advertising platform for 1699 CDs and Tower Records, but it was not a big commercial opportunity from a revenue standpoint. Now it is, now it's tremendously advantageous to have your music video on our service because of the monetization rate that it creates. And the viewership has never been larger. Um, it's never been larger on a television in its entirety of its existence. And, um, and we're enjoying that growth trajectory with all these smaller services, the fragmentation of distribution, that's given us you know, really what amounts to a global television network that we operate. And, um, and we're getting better at that every day. And, and you know, that joint venture is benefiting from that every day.
0: It's a, it's a fantastic story. So we build this technology foundation. We spend years on the video side pivot to music, you have a a cup of coffee for a year and change, leading globally at Shazam. Not to gloss over that, that was a big, 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 big gig um, and a very interesting company. And now, give or take six years at Vivo. Uh, I just read one of your latest launches, one of our markets is Australia, so we pay attention to that market, and that you just launched a new joint venture with Samsung uh, down in Australia, And you're creating. You used the words a minute ago. Your own television network.
1: Yeah. So Samsung TV Plus is a great example of a partner that we've started to push through various regions. Right. So we started in the U.S. uh, went to Europe. You know, so we have a pan-European relationship with those folks, uh, and we were really adamant to get into Australia as well. Um, They're you know virtual MVPD. You know, streaming. You know, it's it's a fast channel. Uh, that we that we put up uh, in Australia, we have Vivo Pop there today. Uh, we will build out you know more channels just like we have in the U.S. And um, you know it's to us this is a linear you know 24/7, 365 channel uh the fan base that still had a huge demand for that is really interesting because of the the kind of the programming discussion we had about the demise of music videos on television there's still a feverish appetite to be programmed to to lean back and enjoy music videos but you know there's also the opportunity to have video on demand sitting you know very closely behind it and as you get into any one of these applications or or smart televisions there's five or six ways to watch vivo Um, And I think that's really our strategy. It's ubiquitous distribution. We want to be in the neighborhoods that people frequent because the music video as a genre, as a content type, as an entertainment source is ubiquitously popular. So we don't want to cordon off our distribution to just one place where you might find it. Um, It should be, you know, promoted and sourced and searched and discovered in every place that you can watch video and as we know there's lots of different places where people watch music videos and lots of different places where people watch videos in general and that's diversifying all the time
0: so let's talk about with these global partnerships you have you're you've sort of with a contemporary approach you're reintroducing in the digital world successfully what MTV walked away from completely from where they began. Talk about that evolution from what once was very potent MTV, all of it went bye bye on their air in terms of music video content. Uh, and now, Vivo, with a tremendous amount of success, really reimagining what it is for the modern era.
1: Yeah, I, I think the story maybe is just bigger than, than VIVO or music videos. It's the relationship of studios and networks, right? You know, who creates the content at what you know at what production value, um, and then the economies or the economics to get that distributed and and monetized. And you described a number of different you know scenarios that we pay very close attention to. And, and some in, we take inspiration from and some we try to learn some lessons where it might not have gone so well. And we apply them to our day to day, you know, on behalf of the music labels that put us in business. And in our world, the music labels are the studios. Um, they are many uh, and they have a hugely diversified you know, set of content production that delivers unbelievable four minute on average videos to our doorstep every single day. And, you know, we're very fortunate to have that kind of pipeline that, you know, fundamentally as a joint venture of those labels, we're not paying for that production, we are in charge of monetizing it, we're in charge of clearing its rights, we're in charge of distributing it, Um, but we are certainly a beneficiary of what has as i mentioned long been a promotional element for the artist and really a passion project for the artists themselves it's the visual representation of their art form and i do think you know whether they made a penny or not i think they would make music videos anyway you know, I, I, I've spoken with a number of artists. We have great, you know, video and audio of them saying, yeah, no, this is one of the most important things that I do is make a video about a song. And they're not necessarily talking about the marketing. They're talking about putting a visual representation of this incredible song that they've made um, and putting it out to their fans. And really, that's what they're most interested in. And, you know, we're there as the caretakers, we're there as the, you know, the rep firm um, to be a little bit more business to business about it and make sure that we're returning value to them on the investment that they made uh, in the production and the investment that they made in the original creation of the song. So, you know, I, I think that's the angle that we go at it with. And, and I think that the technology that's available to us has made the end users experience Better. You know, I don't really care what one network did or didn't. I don't really care when they stopped or when they started. Everyone's looking for cheap content and everyone's looking for high levels of monetization. And, you know, no matter what network you're talking about, and there's plenty that are out there, you know, whether it's a Viacom network or a Discovery network or a Warner network, they're looking to drive their content costs down and they're looking to drive their CPMs up. And their ratings have to go up as well and that's a harder and harder thing to do as you know traditional linear televisions ratings are going down but these fragments that we're finding we don't have a legacy business that we're protecting we're in a very advantageous position we're going out and we're distributing to places that we know will have our content in the best possible light for consumers so we're constantly growing Um, That is a much easier proposition than protecting your legacy business while also transitioning to these other fragmented forms of distribution. I find myself fortunate um, but you know, I also love the problem that these other big you know, traditional networks are trying to solve. And I, and I think they have lots of different ways to solve it. Um, it's a matter of really grinding on the legacy of what you're bringing to the table and then looking at the innovation that, that's through the windshield in front of you um, and, and trying to embrace both at the same time. And uh, some do it well and some don't. Uh, but you know, I do think that they learn from each other and they eventually get to the right spot because at the end of the day, they do have the chief investment officers at advertising agency holding groups on a, on a bat phone and they can drive lots and lots of dollars through their businesses.
0: Yeah, it's a, it's a fascinating point you bring up. And the, you know, sort of the origin of the big networks and certainly the big Hollywood studios, these were sort of, some of them were more business oriented, some more creative oriented, but they were these visionary and legendary characters. They were not engineers. They were not grounded in science. So, at Vivo, you have the art of music and the science on the business side of how to make that. And you're not tethered to a legacy model. So, that I think gives you a real position of strength in the marketplace.
1: Yeah, it's funny. Uh, I can't remember if it was our last sales conference or the one before that. And I say sales conference, but these are like big Vivo events. Uh, We actually did talk a lot about art and science. It was one of the, Things that describe viva as a as an art gallery and the music videos is the art that hangs in the wall and us being curators and caretakers. Um, so you are right in that regard that. We really do pay a lot of attention to the creative side of the business. We have original content. We have a studio. Um, we really work uh, quite a bit with with upcoming artists. You know, Discover uh, is is a big service that we put out there for our labels and for these artists to get them seen and heard in even larger proportions than they were previously. And um, and we do find that it's you know one of the main things that we're here to do is to is to help emerging artists get larger. Um, that said. We do work with some of the biggest artists in the whole world. Um, and we've worked with some incredible ones lately. Uh, you know, Ariana Grande, Justin Bieber, The Weeknd, Jay Balvin. Um, we've done some really good stuff and our folks are incredible. I mean, the you know, when I talk about production value, uh, if you have a chance to watch some of our official live performances, you can't believe the production value that these folks put in. And they are live, they are singing, they are playing their instruments. From an innovation standpoint, Um, we think programming is the next step for us. We feel like we've solved for the advertising market. We have a huge audience that we followed into the living room. There's all these services with different types of search and discovery that are associated with them, whether it's an EPG or a video on demand carousel. Um, So from a programming standpoint, we're learning along with our viewership and taking inspiration from how they watch. And then we're filtering it back into the way that we present not just current music or the music that they search for, but new music. Uh, and new artists and giving them the best of what they want and then giving them the thing that they didn't know that they wanted
0: as well yeah and you talked about that commitment and passion around production value and elevating your game as a as a player not just in curation but production of original content and breaking new talent we've been lucky and i think you know this we've been working with your team in london led by james cornish for years now and we do a special night at one of the great music rooms that's It's the highlight of every Advertising Week Europe, and we've been doing it since with you, I think since year one in 2013 at Ronnie Scott's. Ronnie Scott's, yeah. And fantastic uh, venues. And we've done the Discover platform, the Lyft platform have all been brought to life. Um, And your team comes in there, transforms the room. We don't get it until after the first, they have their early show, whatever that seven o'clock, eight o'clock show is, we take the room at about 10, And your team has done all the work in advance to flip it and completely transform, retain everything that makes Ronnie Scott's what it is, but you make it yours and then bring incredible talent year after year.
1: Yeah. It's one of the things we take pride in. First of all, I love Ronnie Scott's from the first time I showed up, you walked me in there and I was like, this is the coolest place I've ever been know, obviously right in Soho and just a legendary jazz venue, but, um, but lights up with any kind of music. And, yeah, you know, the artists really like playing there because they all know what it means. They all know who's performed there. They know that Jimi Hendrix was there. But like they, they know all this cool stuff. And um, and we just enjoy it. Uh, you know, we've got unbelievable production teams on the ground in London that go all over Europe and shoot. Um, we have a studio, it just moved, but it was in Shoreditch. Um, and you know, we have we have on location shoots that we do in LA. We have a studio in Brooklyn. Um, we have some just really talented people, lighting, staging, audio, it's just, it's a lot of fun to work with those folks and when we need them to do something, whether it's, you know, front with an artist uh, that we're going to go out and ultimately sell, or if it's a B2B production that, that we're looking to do like our new fronts, these folks jump right in and, and just do incredible work and, and not just make artists look great, they they do the impossible job of making some of us look pretty good as well. So um, we, we love working with them and they're very talented people. Um, And it's, and it is very much like working in a network. You know, you, you have these folks that that's their job. That's what they, they go to bed at night and they
0: wake up in the morning looking to do uh, and and we're the beneficiary. Fantastic. So you've got two incredible companies who you work with, who are the partnership between universal and Sony Uh, talk about the different cultures and how they contribute to your success on the sales side and the, the distribution side, because you've got a, a hat with two brims.
1: Yeah, I mean, these folks are, are professionals, and we learn as much from them as, you know, they get reported back from us. And, you know, I was very fortunate to have a little bit of exposure to the music industry through Shazam before I got here, but not in a not in the same way, You know, not in an ownership structure, um, and got to learn a little bit about, you know, what the data is that, uh, that drives you know, marketing at, uh, at music labels and how their media business works and you know, how the release schedules work, how the various interactions with the artists might work. And I've seen that all, you know, again, here at Vivo, but on just a different scale, at a much bigger scale. And the music labels are super supportive of us. I mean, both Sony and Universal, um, lend us their artists from time to time. You know, we obviously are, are digging in and, and getting huge lineups from them for on an annual basis for Discover and for Lyft um, and, and for our, you know, our official live productions. And, you know, these are folks that tell us all the time, what's important in the music industry, what's happening in the streaming audio world, which we obviously pay attention to, but that's not core to our business. And we need to know how those businesses work in order for the music video to complement what those endeavors might be, what those marketing goals might be, and then what the ultimate results might be for a given artist on an album release uh, or a single. So. Um, it is a very in-depth and collaborative conversation that we have on an ongoing basis and then we also collectively work with them you know across the board for for any level of distribution that we do you know we, we go out and request to go on these uh, various services and make sure that it aligns with their with their strategies and with their goals and you know for us we just really want to be everywhere um, and and they're very supportive of that you know and I think um, you know it, it is Balancing that promotional and commercial value of the music video in their eyes, and also delivering a, a big bottom line result, you know, in the form of royalties uh, back to the labels and ultimately to the artists themselves. So, you know, I think it's a it's a really healthy relationship. I think, um, you know, in success, you're always going to have happiness, and, and luckily, we've uh, been on a pretty good run here of success, and the business has about, been around over 12 years. Um, so, um, so we actually are forecasting for even more success in the future. So we don't think any, you know, big changes are are coming. I think it's just more of the same, honestly. And and they're very supportive of that as well. They like our strategy. They like the team that they have in place, and uh, they certainly like the performance that we've been able to put up.
0: Oh, you you can't argue with performance. So let's talk about uh, on the sales size a little bit and working with brands, and that landscape has. Uh, really evolved. Uh, everybody now is in the content business, and you are a tremendous pathway for brands that are looking to leverage the power and passion of music. And you're across two mediums, right? And so you're you're both. You've got the ears and the eyes, you know, covered. Talk about the evolution of how brands are working with you. Who's having success, and where you kind of see that landscape going in the next year or so. I
1: mean, first and foremost, when you go out and you try to sell at scale and you're trying to sell on an annual basis as we do in the upfront, I always want to go at it with, with a content lineup and, and a list of franchises and formats that you're going to make one way or the other. This is not a built-of-sold mentality. And I think, you know, if as long as that's the mass majority of what you do, you can start to think about and flavor in something that's more customized or branded content or bespoke. And, you know, I think that we've been able to really transition our business into much more of a media network and selling the inventory that's associated with the artist and the reach into the audience than necessarily selling that one thing that you can own and hope that a lot of people watch it. Um, So, you know, for us, I think the power of music and the diversification of music you know, across multiple genres. And if you think about us, I always say, you know, we're, we're a global music television network. We're lots of networks. Um, if you compare it to the people that watch and, and how they watch in clusters with given genres or given artist collections that they just enjoy. So for, you know, for our, you know, go to market strategy, we're looking to make sure that we are given credit for that type of diversity, that we're giving credit for that type of reach across the board because if you just zoom out and look at Vivo as one entity from a buyer's perspective it's very hard to get your arms around it. it's like wow I could just you know I can buy anything and there's so much but when you narrow it down, down, narrow it down to the television screen, narrow it down to the genre of content, narrow it down to the artist and their premiere, narrow it down to multicultural or, or you know geo um we are very much a supply you know constrained and demand heavy Business. And that's been something that we've taken into the upfront. And we've been successful in in selling a lot of that through and selling it out. Um, So, you know, it's a matter of pricing and packaging and and just getting recognition for the depth and breadth of the content and the audience that we represent.
0: And you've got a genuine global footprint. um, The music fan in me is going to come out a little bit. How much are you seeing? great acts from other parts of the world like I was very lucky and got to go to the global citizen show in Soweto and there were a lot of like the great Nigerian acts were on the bill so they had Usher and Pharrell and Jay-Z and a lot of America Eddie Vedder it was very it was an unbelievable show but they also had Wiz WizKid and some of the great Nigerian acts are you seeing more globalization and artists coming from more places than we used to see
1: well, first and foremost, I mean, you hit the nail on the head. The music business is a global licensed business. Um, I think part of that has to do with the cross-border popularity of these of these acts. Um, but I also think part of it has to do in the digital age with DRM and what's protectable. Um, and, you know, the, the music video, even though it's four minutes, is a fairly small file. Um, and, you know, from a piracy standpoint, you want to make sure that um, you are out and licensed in every market and that you're representing and claiming your content, you know, be it on YouTube or another service across, you know, these huge audiences and across all of these borders. So we're very cognizant of that. And, you know, we clear rights in 55 markets. We really work. Directly in about 14 markets from an ad sales point of view. Um, so we are very much a global footprint, and we do look to approach brands and agencies with global opportunities, and we do that on a number of uh, on a number of our accounts and do it successfully because you know those artists are so ubiquitous in their popularity. Yeah. Um, you would be surprised. I mean, I always go a few years back because Desposito and Luis Fonsi was a huge hit. Um, and, but, it, you know, it's great Latin, uh, you know, uh, influence music and it was the number one song that year and the number one video that year in Poland, right? You know, so you, you can take all these little case studies of one and, and put them out there and just marvel at how quickly and how, how the viral nature of music spreads and how popular it becomes. But I'm not going to say that we take it for granted, but we expect it. Um, and we take advantage of it. When it goes, you know, when we know a big artist is coming into market, like one of the big triple platinum artists that's going into market with a premiere, we sell it global, we sell it across borders very, very quickly to big advertisers. Um, And they embrace that, the ability to own that moment, that cultural experience and be part of the zeitgeist of a premiere. Is you can't really do that anywhere else. Um, you can't know the quality of the content, know the popularity of the artist, and have a guarantee against the reach. That in each country, on a monthly basis, in each country, we reach at a minimum twenty-five percent of its population at a minimum. Um, so you know, there's there's such a there's such an interesting opportunity for advertisers to sell their products and services with that kind of reach.
0: Yeah, no, it's a, certainly a, a dramatic uptick from the British invasion when you look at you know what globalization of music is, is today. So are there particular parts of the world, Kevin, where you're seeing growth really lead? Uh, so we were at a, an event a few years ago with the World Federation of Advertisers in Lisbon and their CEO and old pal of ours, Stefan Lorch, you may know Stefan sort of the, glo- the, Bob of, uh, the global Bob Liadis, <laughs> and he talked about 60 some odd percent of brand growth the next 10 years will be in Asia. <laughs> Where globally are you seeing the highest growth and are there areas that you're a little worried about?
1: So, you know, where our music video growth happens and then where the music genres uh, growth happens can be different, right? So we, we have seen a tremendous surge in popularity of Latin music, Latinx music, um, and that is spread across a number of different countries, uh, but it does have a global level of popularity. Um, on a month-to-month basis, the popularity of just the genre of Latin music um, could exceed that of pop and hip-hop. Um, in, you know, in a lot of different regions. So we're, we're interested in that growth, and we're following that growth. And we obviously invest in that, you know, we've got so some be um, Vivo, our multicultural sales team sells uh, both here in the US to Latinx audiences, as well as uh, into Latin America. Um, and then our European team sells throughout Spain and Portugal. And, uh, and, you know, we sell kind of all around the world as many places as we can. But yeah, uh, You know, I think that for us, one of the keys is that whenever you go into market, you know, you had mentioned Australia and the Samsung TV Plus launch there, um, we look for localized content as well as global popular content. And that's a key to our success. That's a key to our programming. And so, you know, based out of London, you know, the folks there yeah. uh, and, and, um, and we've got a great team that goes out and finds the latest music, finds the most popular music in each country. And, uh, and we program for that on the on Roku, Apple, Amazon, but also on Samsung TV Plus and Pluto TV and lots of others that go throughout these different countries. So um, I think it's a combination of the global popularity of music and then the local you know, popular music that we're infusing together in those programming blocks. And um, that's what gets advertisers interested. They don't just want, um, you know, the top of the pops and typically, you know, Western music. They, They want local music and they want their local heroes. And a lot of the times those local heroes are their brand spokespeople as well. So it's always about synergies of their
0: creative. So let's talk a little bit about you and your experience the last year and a half you're a guy who's used to getting on airplanes. Now you may go as far as, you know, Trenton or Manalapan, you know, you're not really going anywhere. Talk about the challenge for you of leading a global organization and not traveling all that much.
1: Yeah, and I'm not gonna uh, couch it. It is a challenge. Um, You know, as connected as we can be and as much, you know, Zoom time as we can have, Having you know face-to-face relationships, not just with our internal team but with our clients, is is better um, in, in my mind, and I look forward to getting back to it. Um, we've been successful, though. I think one reason we've been successful is that our audience has grown um, through the work-from-home orders, and people were at home watching more and more videos, and we were a beneficiary of that, which is great. Um, but I also think it gives you the time when you're not on the road, you know, doing two hundred thousand plus miles in a year to think about things and to create strategies and to to better your business and to go out and you know find more, you know, find more opportunity, really grind on you know who you're hiring on a team. Uh, we've had so many people start at, a, at our company uh, over the last 18 months that have yet to report to an office yet and to, you know, some of which we've seen in different local, you know, socially distanced environments and stuff. And we do have places in the industry where we're starting to get back together. Um, but you are right, you know, it's, it hasn't been quite as much on a plane, although a little bit more, um, you know, recently just to get things internally back together. But um, but we're, we're doing okay. I think we've got a team that is, was very tight knit to start. Um, we also have experienced a lot of success, so I don't think that pulls apart at the seams as much as when you might be, you know, a little bit stressed as an organization. And um, and our narrative is fun to tell. You know, we we've got a really interesting story. It's a newer story. I think it's one that was wasn't expected. Um, you know, we were we were kind of underrated for a little while, and now I don't think we're hiding from anybody. Most people see us coming, uh, so that's a nice experience to have gone through. And I do believe. That it accelerated through the last 18 months. And, um, you know, we're looking forward to not just this upfront cycle uh, where our folks have done a bang up job across the board and delivering just a huge kind of sea change of market share uh, year over year. But you know, indications are as we grow our, as we grow our supply that our demand uh, is actually growing even faster. And as we go into Next Upfront, it's really about us telling the story over and over again and putting the right numbers against it and getting the right formulas in front of these folks. Um, And doing that on Zoom can be done. You know, it's it's not impossible. Um, And, you know, just to know that the other folks, uh, you know, the folks on the other side of the Zoom are in the same boat and that they're grinding in the same ways to get their clients and their products and services sold we feel like we're developing and delivering a service that they really need because they're struggling to place points out there. And, uh, and those points are getting more and more expensive. And, and we're a nice outlet for that.
0: Yeah, I think you hit on it. And I see it quite similarly. You can't wait to get back out there and be with people. I'm traveling for the first time, actually just talking to James earlier, because I'll be in London uh, for the first time quite soon. And you know, for the first time in almost two years, So, uh, but this has worked way better than any of us thought it would, right? I would have lost all the bets on how well businesses and your business granted a a major part of it predisposed to this medium, of course. Uh, I know we got the live piece. I know we've got all the custom programs that you have and in particular around new and emerging talent, but at its core, the medium works in this environment. That's got to be a huge, huge uh, relief, if you will. Well, one, the compilation of the medium
1: works in this environment, but also the source of the medium works in this environment. You know, we went to market at last year's Upfront with Always On, Never Postponed, Never Cancelled. And when you think about it, the amount of time that is on film, you know, for a music video, and the number of people that are required to shoot a music video is totally manageable, um, whether it be in a purely socially distanced way or in some other you know, safe type of production, and we ourselves have done safe productions. Um, and you know, one of the ones uh, I got an unbelievable chance. I had to uh, interview Katy Perry uh, for last year's um, for last year's upfront, and she had just come from a shoot where she did daisies on a Super Eight with uh, with with a camera person and a director, and that was it. And uh, I don't know if you've seen that video, but it's, you know, her up in kind of like the Ojai area and it's incredible. I mean, it's so cool, but I kind of think that you're seeing this level of creativity that is necessary, you know, the necessity uh, is the mother of all invention. And, and these people, they're creative people, you know, they are artists. And if you, if you constrain what they have to do, they just get more creative. And, um, and I think that's been something that, that we've been super happy to, to watch and to enjoy and to distribute and, and to, and to you know, make a little bit of a business out of it. But that continues today, that always on, never postponed, never canceled. One of the things that we go to market with is that we really lack seasonality in our popularity because of the depth and volume of content that comes through on a daily basis, people are always watching music videos. And there's a huge catalog that sits behind it that people always watch as well. Never underestimate the value of nostalgia, right? You know, Netflix built a pretty big business on it. So, um, so we also have that, you know, back through the decades and we celebrate that a ton. Um, And what we found is that with the advent and, and, you know, proliferation of connected television viewership through this work from home environment, we see families watching together, you know, showing you your old favorite music videos and the kids showing you their new newest favorite music videos. And, um, you know, we're, we're getting co-viewership that, you know, we're getting credit for out in the buying marketplace, but more importantly, the viewership is watching together and they're sharing music together. Um, And that is a, that, that is a healthy thing for the entire ecosystem of not just music videos, but of the music industry in general.
0: Great, so, so well said. So Kevin, just to wrap, uh, we talked a lot earlier about rich media and what that used to mean and what it means today. Do you think anybody back then imagined that the pipe would get wide enough to allow all the things that we are have at our fingertips in that remote control today? Do you think anybody back then, 2004, 2005 had any sense? as to where this could all go?
1: I think we always had a sense, but we had no idea of the timing. And you know, even in the early days of Hulu, um, multi-bit rate streaming, edge caching, all of these different innovations that were put forward to just get an awesome end product to the end user in a really constrained environment, was what that team worked on on a daily basis, and and had real challenges getting you uh, high definition, you know, seven twenty at the time um, over a streaming environment was really the first of its kind, and um, it continues today. I mean, the the picture quality and the cameras will only ever get better. Therefore, the file sizes will only ever get bigger. It's that same thing with rich media. It's you know, it, it's it's the definition of innovation. It's the thing that's on the bleeding edge. And, um, and that's what I like. I, I, that's where I always wanna be because it's what people want. It's what they ultimately desire. And if you're selling things that people want, usually you do pretty well in sales. Um, so you know, for me, it's been fun to watch along the way. I'm not involved in any way, shape or form in writing the code, but I do really appreciate the people that do. Uh, And the teams that come together to figure these complex problems out and do it in a way that you would never know and and that you'll never see and that you'll never hear about. Um, But, you know, it's um, it's it's a marvel. And um, you had to go out there and represent that kind of innovation. And right now, our innovation is spread across all of the different vendors that we work for. We root for Roku. We root for Apple. We root for Amazon. We root for Samsung, Vizio, LG, you name it. Um, and, and we root for all of the, you know, the folks that have been in this business a long time in you know, the Comcast and the Cox and, and, uh, you know, all the folks that are kind of driving their businesses into the future. These are things that we will ultimately benefit from. And, um, and really when I say we benefit from it, I'm, I'm talking more about myself as a viewer and then the business will always be, you know, we'll, we'll have positive results if the viewer is ultimately happy. Right. And, um, you know, we, we love all the streaming services that are out there. How many are going to exist five years from now? I don't know. Um, will it consolidate? Will all of these different fragments consolidate? Of course, but it won't be in the way that you think and it won't be in the timeline that you can understand. Um, those are the guesses that people much smarter than me make. I just try to be in the right place at the right time to take advantage of it when they do all that good work.
0: Fantastic. Well, I guess the one thing we know is that uh, you would, if you bet the under on Moore's Law, you would have won. Uh, because the, pay, the, sure. pace, the pace of change is much quicker. All right, well, thanks for doing this. I appreciate it. Hey man, thanks for having me. I really
1: appreciate the inclusion and, uh, and I'm glad you guys are getting all this stuff in.